0: Hey everybody, welcome to Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're gonna chat with parents and experts and sometimes parents who are experts to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. Well, today I am back with my absolute favorite guest. You guessed it, Mark Worthington. So, for those of you who are just joining us new and don't know the history here, Mark is my law partner, but he is also my husband. We have a family business, actually a family suite of businesses that serve the disabled community. And we have been working together for almost 10 years now. It'll be 10 years, um, oh, coming up soon at the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so exciting to be back again to talk about a topic that is ripe at this time of year. Yes, it's tax time. And I have to tell you we get so many tax questions. They're both, you know, tax reporting and tax preparation and all kinds of things. And Mark is my tax expert. I know enough to fill a thimble and basically I rely on him to help us get the the good word out about taxes. So it being the um, end of March, beginning of April, right on the cusp, there are probably many of you out there tearing your hair out, trying to figure out how to do certain things with your tax reporting. The questions that we get are endless, pretty much. (laughs) And I, I absolutely understand why. And What we did was we picked out the four most popular questions that we get over and over and over again. What I love to do with this podcast is to be able to give you the information that you need to simplify and streamline your life. So here we go. What are the four most popular questions? Mark, do you know what they are?
1: Well, you just told them to me, but I don't remember them.
0: <laughs> he does this to me all the time.
1: But I'm really thrilled, you know. As as a as a trust and tax attorney, I'm thrilled when anybody ever wants to talk to me. Um, and but I am I come by it naturally, you know. I was born in Dallas, Texas.
0: Ha ha ha! So funny. I forgot to laugh. Okay. So the questions today are, can I claim my adult child as a dependent? Let's talk about SSI room and board. And is that income tax to me, uh, income taxable to me, sorry. Um, Oh my gosh. And then we're gonna get into the real heavy topic, taxation of special needs trusts and Secure Act updates hot off the presses. And then the last, Topic is about caregiver payments, both AFC and PCA, and how to deal with that from a tax perspective.
1: I think that's five topics.
0: No, it's four. Okay, you can't count.
1: All right, <laughs> I don't read upside down very well. Okay, go ahead.
0: Anyhow,
1: yeah, fire away. We're first and foremost, in the audience. Let's go.
0: Here is our our legal disclaimer. We are not your accountants, nor are we your tax attorneys. So we really need you to take this information, synthesize it for your situation and take it back to your tax preparer, your tax attorney, your accountant, whatever level of person you use to advise you about your tax situation. Was that good enough, Mark? Sure. Okay. (laughs) All right. Can I claim my adult child as a dependent? Seriously, the number one number 1 question that we get okay.
1: honestly and just like 99% of all of my answers as a lawyer the answer is just it
0: depends. Just,
1: just like the adult underwear it depends <laughs> so the yeah so look the, the bottom line is this um there if your adult child qualifies otherwise qualifies for the dis- for the dependent child exemption then that that has an age dependency, all right, of like nineteen or twenty-four if in, if in uh, college and so forth. But if uh, quote permanently and totally disabled, um, then uh, then 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 the child can qualify regardless of age. So there are a lot of mind-numbingly complex things besides that.
0: Of course. There so are.
1: you qualify. So let's say there was a, a your your child, disabled child was uh, age 30 and, and, and living with you more than half of the year. Um, then if they meet certain other qualifications and most importantly, if you provide over half of their support, then they qualify uh, for you to take them as dependent. As a uh, as your dependent child. But suppose that they don't live with you over half of the year maybe they live in a residential program or something like that, then you can't take them as a dependent child, but you might be able to take your own child as a, quote, dependent relative. But then there's other restrictions. They can't have any more than $4,300 of gross taxable income for the year. Um, And there's a bunch of other issues too, especially since if, for example, the Commonwealth is providing a lot of that support, the residential program, you may not be providing half of their support. That can be a difficult computation.
0: Right. So we have people who live in all different settings. Some people are living at home and we're going to talk about that in just a minute when that comes to social security. Some people are living out in a full care residential setting, whether that is a group home of some sort or um, a placement where the rent is being paid for by uh, Section 8 and, you know, the caregiving is being paid for some other way and Medicaid is paying for 99.9% of the health care and so on. And then there are people who live in, and this is a lot of people in our country who live in what we would call supported living environments. They are semi, semi independent and semi dependent. And that range is phenomenal. You know, um, what happens is take, for example, one of our, Uh, wonderful agencies here where you can move in to a shared apartment with some supports and you pay X number of dollars for your room and common area and X number of dollars for the support. So a lot of times people might end up with a housing voucher to pay for the rent piece but there's not enough money to pay for the support piece. And this is where parents or other family members, or even a trust may come into play, but we're just talking about parents right now. And so if parents are providing $3,000 a month for supported support services to support the the residential um, placement, but the rent is assessed at, you know, $1,500 $1,500 a month, and that's what the voucher is paying. It, it's kind of hard to figure out how much parents are providing, you know, because you have to look at the health care mark, you have to look at the food stamps, uh, you have to look at just so many things. And I think it's safe to say that the rule of thumb is probably if your adult child is living outside of your home and you're not providing the, you know, big chunk of the supports, paying the rent, paying for food, paying for doctors, paying for the residential supports, you're probably not going to meet that rule, wouldn't you say? Yes. That 50% uh, yes, yes. So. Um, that's a rule of thumb. Of course, you've got to take your individual details and take them to your accountant and calculate it. Um, the Having somebody be your dependent on your taxes can be a great benefit for some and a negligible benefit for others. That
1: can actually also hurt sometimes because sometimes you can claim somebody as a dependent. And if you do, And if they have taxable income themselves, it can deprive them of the ability to take certain other deductions, that person from taking deductions. Probably wouldn't really apply to our disabled community, but.
0: Well, it wouldn't apply in some circumstances. But if you have somebody that is home but working, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're going to have to carefully consider what. The scoop is and whether it's better for you to claim them as a dependent versus them to be able to take their own individual deductions. Yeah. So complicated, I know, yeah. but those are the factors that you need to consider. And,
1: and by the way, your child, for purposes of the dependent child exception, is all of your descendants, not just your children, foster children. Um, your siblings, nieces, and nephews. I mean that that's a quote child for the dependent child exception or uh, excuse me dependent child uh, deduction uh, deduction, yeah. and um th- there's a lot of other you know, i'm I'm going to drop this now, yes. because there's too much detail to go into. <laughs>
0: there's a lot of stuff there for sure, but this kind of rolls into talking about social security. So just a quick refresher. When someone's on SSI and only SSI, not SSDI, they are going to get their benefit amount based on their housing category, essentially. Do they live on their own? Do they share expenses? Do they live in the home of another? Is somebody paying for their supports? And All of those factors need to be taken into consideration. But if they are living in the home of another, the parent's home, then they are going to get what I call dinged a little bit with their Social Security payment. And that is going to be ISM, in kind support and maintenance. And that is one third of the federal benefit rate. It also reduces your uh, Massachusetts um, payment as well, and other states follow follow suit with that. So any state where there is a both a federal and a state payment is likely to get a reduction in the state payment as well. So what does that mean? That means that if you are providing, Of value of room and board. And that is generally, um, you know, a few categories such as um, the cost of the housing, heat, um, sometimes electricity, if electricity is heating the house and um, taxes, if, if you've got a mortgage payment and that sort of thing, there's a list that goes into that. And food, food alone could be huge, um, especially with the inflation that we've been having lately. So once you take a look at what the fair market value of the supports that you are offering and compare it to the reduction in benefit, which is about $280 these days, you often will find that the $280 is a lot less. So you're not going to go through the effort and the aggravation, truly, of doing the calculation with Social Security and providing them all the documentation that they would need to calculate whether somebody is paying their fair market share. Why do we do this? When they are paying their fair market share, they get to keep the full benefit rate versus getting that production for ISM. And again, the ISM is almost always less than what it would be for them to pay their fair market share. So in a way, Mark, they social security is actually giving us a present. It's a big benefit to yeah. take that small reduction instead of wiping away the entire benefit amount.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, like if, if, if your home is, You have this big, beautiful home and there's, uh, you know, the two parents and uh, this and this one uh, disabled child living there, adult child. And you would say, oh, okay, well, you know, what's fair is that that child pays a third, you know, and well, you know, a third of the fair market rental of that home and a third of the fair market value of the food and so on like that. Could be more than their entire SSI benefit. So they they may not even have the wherewithal
0: to pay it. Right. Okay. So um, I know that there is a um, push right now to take food out of that ISM calculation. And I'm not sure that we have gotten anywhere yet, but I think that there is actually a date for this to be in effect. However, it's still we're still um, including food at this moment. So, having said that, now that we've gone over what this whole idea of ISM is, how does that drive with dependent with claiming your adult child as a dependent? We'll talk about that in a second. But many people ask so. Um, I still want to collect rent or room and board for my child. Can I do that even though my child is taking an ISM reduction? Yes, you can still charge room and board, even if it's less than the fair market value. And many, many families do that because sometimes when the child's living at home and parents are still paying for everything... They can't spend their social security fast enough to um, avoid the child, to avoid getting over that $2,000 asset limit that social security SSI only has. Remember, we're only talking about SSI right now. We're not talking about SSDI. Two different categories. If you're confused about social security, go back and listen to my podcast about social security. Um, and I will probably do another one this year just because it's very popular topic. So is that room and board taxable to me as the parent
1: taxable income Mm -hmm. because rent is taxable income to somebody, isn't it?
0: That's right. So, you know, we have a building and we lease out space. If we're collecting rents from other people, other businesses, that's, taxable income. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: However, if you are a close family member, like parent-child, you can charge what we call room and board, and it's not taxable income to you. It's a different category. So two things, just to sum up. Yes, you can charge less than fair market value. Let's say somebody's receiving um, $580 total of federal and state benefits after the ISM reduction. And you want to charge them $500 a month for room and board because your expenses are huge and that would barely cover their food. <laughs> Truly. Um, you so, can in do other that. words,
1: it's not enough for Social Security to say, oh, you're paying the fair value for all of the uh, room and board. And therefore we're going to not reduce your full SSI. That's right. Because you're not providing them with ISM.
0: You're still going to get that ISM reduction because for most families with the high cost of food and the high cost for housing all over the country, you're never going to get to that one third. Um, you're never going to get to the fair market value. So you're definitely going to take that one-third reduction. But if you charge room and board of something less than your fair market value, that's fine. You can still do that according to Social Security. And it's not going to be taxable income to you as the homeowner or even the home renter. It is not. Rent, rent income. It's just somebody contributing to the cost of the household.
1: Well, when it. now, it, of course, a person on SSI is free to, you know, do things with that SSI money. Uh, but uh, what if one of the parents is repayee and they're reporting every year, and Social Security sees
0: these transfers of money to the parents? It's very common. And they generally do not question it. It's very common. Social Security knows that families are keeping their adult children with disabilities home a lot longer because of the cost of housing. And so they're not questioning it as long as it's reasonable. Okay. Um, And that question of reasonable really has to do with your personal circumstances. How expensive is it? How much food do they eat? You know, all of that. So let's circle back to Mark, if, if you will. How does that paying rent impact? And I shouldn't say rent. It's really room and board. Yeah. How does that pay payment of room and board go back and factor in when you are thinking about claiming your adult child who lives at home with you as a dependent. Right.
1: So, I mean, first of all, you know, we do need to be reasonable about before we get all excited about whether or not I can take my child as a dependent on my income tax return, uh, you know, make sure that the benefit's worth it. (laughs) I mean, you know, it may not be that big of a benefit to you. Right. So, uh, but what it can do is in some cases, probably not many, but that $500 a month that the child gives you is their contribution to their own support. And if you as the parent who wants to take the child as a dependent on the tax return, we're, we're already getting down close to 50%, like you were at 51% or something. And the other 49% was being provided by the state and plus the child's you know contributing You know, something to what when if the child now puts in five hundred dollars a month of SSI on top of that, that could tip you over and put you under the 50%. So the child doesn't have to provide more than 50%. It has to be everybody but you, Mm -hmm. the state, the child, etc. So it could knock you off of the claiming the child is a dependent.
0: And again, this is really gonna depend on your individual circumstances and how expensive the cost of living is for you where you are here in massachusetts where we are housing is incredibly expensive and therefore it's even a 500 room and board contribution is probably not going to touch most families um complete housing and residential expenses
1: well right but you know that, 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 I think, has more bearing on whether or not the, the that you can get out from under the ISM reduction.
0: No, no, it doesn't, Mark, because if you are four people living in a home that costs about $7,500 a month to run between just the pure, you know, heating and, um, you know, mortgage and taxes and the cost mm-hmm. of food. Um, which is common. Okay. You know.
1: But suppose this child is it has incredible medical expenses and is on MassHealth Medicaid here in Massachusetts and is getting a hundred thousand dollars worth of, of, of Medicaid benefits a so, year. That's support.
0: That's true. I see your point. So again individual circumstances. Yes, very
1: much so. And
0: when we send you back to talk to your accountant or your tax preparer, attorney, or your tax attorney, (laughs) please note well that not all tax preparers are the same. Just like all attorneys. Right. Right. So they're going to have differing levels of understanding of all of the things that are categorized when it comes to how your adult child is being supported by the state and federal government. They're not even going to think to ask you if your child's on Medicaid and, you know, what the level of those services are. They only look at things like what is it costing you to run your household. They're not looking at, "Oh, do you have 24 hour nursing care in your house, <laughs> like we even, did
1: even for Elizabeth. Like, even things like a SCO, right? SEO. Medicaid kicks into that. That's part of the support. So there's now, all kinds of now things. Now you have to
0: tell them what a SCO is.
1: I forgot what it stands
0: for. Senior care options. Okay. But it's not just seniors, it's right. also people with right. disabilities. So it's a little misleading. Um So I think we've done that topic to death. I'm sure that you're gonna have more questions about that, but hopefully this just helps you think about the issue in in a broader sense, and you're informed to be able to bring this up to your tax preparer. When you have someone with a disability in your household and you're thinking about claiming them as a dependent or you're helping them file their own tax return, it's probably a good idea not to go to those autofilers and maybe not even do, you know, online tax preparation software. You might really want to think the first year or two that your child is an adult about going to a more formal tax an, preparer, an
1: actual advisor.
0: And then get your questions answered. And perhaps after you get into a routine and a rhythm in a few years, you can then start doing the returns yourself. But that's just my advice. But
1: as soon as you figure it out, they change the law. That's true. <laughs>
0: and going to an advisor can help you think about these things in addition to just you know plopping the numbers into some software and spitting out a return. Many people think, oh, this is so easy. I'm just going to give you all of my data and you're going to just, you know, all I'm paying for is your software access. People think that about attorneys too, that we just plop some names and addresses into some canned documents. That is not the case. What you pay for is the advice and the counsel more than anything else. Okay, moving on. Here's our You know, real challenging topic, which is taxation of special needs trusts. So every year around tax time, we get multiple calls um, every week, and it's people asking for help in filing their returns for their trusts because many, many, many non professional trustees who are family members or close friends of the family end up, you know, in a situation where they're filing taxes for the first time or something's changed and, you know, they are not sure what to do. Trusts are kind of funny animals and special needs trusts are even funkier. So um, first and foremost, let's talk about first party trusts, Mark. So mm-hmm. those are self-settled trusts and The grantor of the trust, which is very important for tax purposes, is considered to be the disabled individual because it's their money that's been contributed in. Whenever you're looking at grantor trust status, Mark, we look at not just the document.
1: Yeah. You cannot tell if a trust is a grantor trust from the four corners of the trust instrument. The number one thing that matters is follow the money, All right, Like what's the Tom Cruise movie, show me the money, right? Yeah. So follow the money. Where did the money come from? That's what matters because you can have a, quote, uh, a well, a D4A trust, you know, the Medicaid payback trust, and we always think of them as self-settled trust. They don't have to be. They could be funded by somebody else, in which case the different rules apply. Right. But in the typical d4a trust the Medicaid payback trust 90 I don't know five or plus percent of them are funded by sold exclusively by the, the um assets the the funds of the disabled beneficiary and in that case I'm
0: sorry I was just going to say don't be fooled that just because your document says who the grantor is that that's really who the grantor oh, yeah. is it actually we-
1: doesn't matter what the document says
0: we've had so many conversations with clients potential clients accountants tax preparers people all different levels of professionals um financial advisors too where they're like hey but it's right here the grantor is john smith um okay
1: only to the extent john (laughs) smith actually put any of john smith's money uh, real estate any other assets into it?
0: Don't forget that a a, a trust document could name Bugs Bunny as the grantor. Well,
1: I mean, really look. Matter. As long as we're on the topic, you can I can have a document in front of me, and right up the top, the title can say the ABC Trust. I don't know if it's a trust until I read it, because right. just because it says it's a trust doesn't mean it's a trust. Now, so the self-settled trust.
0: Which typically are settled, typically are settled with the disabled person. Yeah, like I said,
1: over 95% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, those D4A trusts are um, unavoidably, without exception. Grant or trust with respect to the disabled child. What the heck is a grant or trust? What that means is that for tax purposes, income tax purposes, income tax purposes, not necessarily other tax purposes, but for income tax purposes, we ignore it even if it has its own taxpayer ID number and all of the income deductions, credits, et cetera, that are associated with the assets of that trust Go on the income tax return of the disabled beneficiary, even if there's never any distributions that year from that trust.
0: Right. So, what does that mean, podcast fans? That means that when you are the trustee and you're trying to prepare this um, trust for tax reporting purposes, it's a very abbreviated return that spits out a grantor trust statement.
1: Yeah we call them a grantor letter. So you will actually file the so trust file a, federally file a form called the 1041 and then states have their own weird
0: no well, we're gonna talk about that in just a second well, so get this, to the I next mean topic.
1: Massachusetts is a quote form too but anyway so the 1041 and normally, this is for for an actual no kidding, you know, trust that's its own taxpayer. You know, it's this big, complicated form. It's worse than a 1040. And but for a a grantor trust, there's several ways to file. But the most common, the best way to file is you fill out about the top one third of page one. Mm-hmm. You know, like name, rank, serial number is about all that goes there. And then there's this thing called a grantor letter, and all it has to be is enough information sufficient for the uh, grantor of the trust, in this case the disabled um, beneficiary, to file their own tax return. So it'll have things in there like, well, here's all your ordinary income, and here's this, and here's that, and you know, and then they can file their own return. Now, I'm not saying that the disabled beneficiary has the um, you know capability, but somebody on their behalf can
0: file. And please, if you're even tiny, in a tiny way, inclined to get some help in preparing this return, it just makes sense. This is probably an area where you absolutely should consider <laughs> <laughs> hiring some professional help. Um, that, But wait, it gets worse. I
1: mean, for third party trust, so go ahead.
0: I wasn't gonna get there yet. I wanna say one more thing about these grantor letters. When people hear that the disabled beneficiary is going to have to report all this income on their own personal tax return, most people freak out. What do you think they're worried about? They're worried about public benefits. Does this count as income for public benefits purposes. So almost always that answer is no. Almost always. Um, It is not income received. And when it is not income received in general, don't have to worry about social security. Mm -hmm. Back in the early days of trusts, it was very confusing and uh, you would have to do a lot of explaining, but Social Security understands all of this now, and you don't need to be explaining this. So, the only issue can be with Medicaid Mm
1: -hmm. and VA.
0: And VA. So, most of our disabled, younger disabled beneficiaries, VA is not going to be an issue, especially if people have been disabled all their life.
1: But we do have some.
0: But we do have some. And, um, you know, it's funny because some different different Medicaid agencies um, have different rules about disabled um, recipients, and so you really need to check what's going on and how they do their income
1: right. calculation. So, so um, uh, in the Obama administration, you know, they expanded some Medicaid, and um, they redefined how uh, Medicaid. Um, how you you qualified for Medicaid for certain people uh, when they expanded it and so forth, certain people under age 65 and so on. And so they adopted this this so-called MAGI test, which is the Modified Adjusted Gross Income Test. So they suddenly were, instead of taking defining income in the way that they always had, Which was not related to taxes at all, not related to taxable income. Really about receipts, yeah. Right, about receipts and what you received, whether it was in kind, which means not cash or cash. With Magi, they said, Oh, well, let's just use, you know, like taxable income, which made no sense whatsoever. But they managed to make it work because of how they structured it. But at least one state, Massachusetts, decided Mm -hmm. that they would. I think it was actually a good faith effort to simplify and and standardize the Apple the Medicaid application, um, but they sort of redefined things in a way such that if you have this phantom income from uh, a D four A D4A trust, it does have the potential to show up with MassHealth, which is Medicaid in Massachusetts, as being income and could set off some. Uh, issues until you can figure out how to resolve it so
0: that's beyond the scope of today's topic but just want to make you aware that no problem with social security possible issue with medicaid however many many states um and ours to have you you have a different calculation if you are qualified as disabled for that program if you are on ssi most states will follow Social Security's disability finding and um, not have you have to sort of re-qualify as disabled under Medicaid. However, if you're on SSDI, that's all out the window and you have to qualify as disabled under your state Medicaid agency's rules and then there's a potential there to have a different way of calculating income if you are disabled. That's all I'm gonna say on that topic because that gets into a very long discussion about Medicaid. Okay, third party trusts. So, third party trusts may seem on the face a little bit simpler, and yet they're not.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. So, I love the, you know, you came up with this expression OPM, oh, yeah, right? Other people's money. Right it can be funded a third a, a third party t can be funded with anybody's money in the world except for the disabled beneficiary
0: so we have this saying that with a third party trust the income tax um, the income tax liability is carried out on the shoulders like a child on the shoulders of, of their parent carried out with the distributions to or for the benefit of the beneficiary. That's a little bit simplistic. And as a way to explain DNI <laughs> distributable net income for trusts, but it is a good visualization so that you can understand how income tax liability is carried out to the disabled beneficiary. And that's reported on something called a K-1. It's kind of similar to a 1099, but it's called a K-1. And it lets you know as the beneficiary what your tax liability is. So I, I, I want to just give you a little example. Let's say that your trust, after the cost of administration, because that's deductions, has $10,000 of net income in a year. And that's going to be interest in dividends, capital gains. So
1: no, stop that. You're <laughs> messing it up here. I'll take over. So let's say the trust has $10,000 of ordinary income.
0: I love doing this okay. with him, by the way.
1: Ordinary income is a tax concept. It means interest, dividends, rents, and royalties. And $2,000 of realized capital gain. Okay. okay. Now, unless the trust is drafted in a little bit odd way, uh, unusual way, uh, and if your state law allows it, uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Unless it's drafted in a funny way and your s- state law allows you to do this or, or to do it, you can't, I'm messing this up. The <laughs> capital gains in most cases is going to be trapped in the trust and taxed in there. Okay. The ordinary income flows out the first dollar of distributions, no matter what form it takes. So, for example, let's say that, that I'm the trustee uh, and my disabled beneficiary, um, I, I want to get the disabled beneficiary of the trust an iPad cost 1500 bucks. And so I go out and buy it with the trust money. And I go and hand it to my disabled beneficiary. I say, have a nice day. That carried out $1,500 of taxable income to the beneficiary. That's a distribution. And so the beneficiary will report, and I'll have it on the K-1, the beneficiary will report $1,500 of taxable income that came from the trust, the trust will have left eighty five hundred dollars of taxable ordinary taxable income and two thousand dollars of uh, capital gain to report
0: and therefore it's going to pay tax at the trust tax rate oh
1: yes which is another fun thing the trust uh you know individuals hit uh top federal rates of 37 percent uh on ordinary income at you know five six hundred thousand dollars depending upon whether you're filing single or uh, married a uh, trust hits the top um 37 percent uh amount at a uh, about thir-
0: uh, in about three seconds
1: about thirteen thousand dollars <laughs> a year
0: so um, very very fast
1: right and so there's big tax motivations for distributing unless the this beneficiary of the trust is you know jeff bezos who's already in the tax top tax bracket so didn't help
0: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about those tax brackets. Um, For tax purposes, not social security or mass health or Medicaid purposes, but for tax purposes, we usually do not worry about pushing out the income, the income tax liability to the disabled beneficiary because, in general, most disabled beneficiaries are very low income in general. And they can absorb some additional income tax liability, and it may change their filing status from never having to file a return to having to file a return, but for most of them, it's not going to change their income tax overall liability. They're still going to owe zero for most people. Um, Last year was an exception. I've seen uh, so far in getting all of our trust tax returns done that, unfortunately, because we had such a good year in the stock market, we've got a lot of income being carried out to individuals. And I have somebody now who I'm a guardian for who has never filed a return, but has to file a return and has $3,500 in in tax liabilities to pay just because last year was so phenomenal with the gains and the dividends that, you know, we've never seen this before. So you could have a situation where somebody has, you know, tax liability where they've never had it before. However, I will say that it still worked out better. To pass all of that income out.
1: Yeah, what matters really for that beneficiary is the total taxation on the individual plus the taxation on the trust. You know, that you want, ideally, if you had no other considerations, you would minimize the sum of those two. But we do have other considerations.
0: Right. You can't let that tax tail wag that trust dog. Mm-hmm. That's what we like to say. The distribution decisions really cannot be made based on taxes. They have to be made based on what the beneficiary needs. Their
1: ability to handle things. How much do you need to save and conserve for future needs?
0: Size of the trust.
1: Um, And the form of the distribution, of course, has to be uh, taken great care of because of not only the beneficiary's ability to manage that distribution, but also...
0: Public benefits. Well, now that we've thoroughly confused them, Mark, how about we do even a better job and talk about Secure Act updates?
1: There's been an update. Oh, Uh, that's right. Last month in February, um, we got the long-awaited and kind of a uh, we didn't really expect it. It was almost a surprise. Proposed regulations uh, from the Internal Revenue Service Treasury Department. Um, uh, taking into account the SECURE Act, which became what was signed into law at the very, very, very end of 2019. Um, They really intended to get regulations up by June of 2020, but then, you know, something happened. I forgot what it was, Um, and it's kind of delayed things. So um, the proposed regulations are, in some respect, really good. Um, answered a lot of questions. And uh, in, in some respect, just was like, you can't even believe that this was the IRS that wrote this. It is so clear. Not just, no, no, no. It, it's not even the clarity. It's just that very loose, not being strict at all, Say, hey, you know what, uh, don't worry about that. You know, everything's going to be fine kind of stuff. But there were a few surprises. And one of them, I mean, our, our studio audience may not even really know about this, but one of the big things, the big, one of the big things, maybe the big thing about the Secure Act was it replaced all of the stuff that's like, oh, when you die, right, you can leave IRAs and stuff to uh, kids and so forth, and they can take it out as slowly as over their life expectancy, and you can even leave it in trust for them if you draft it the right way, and that can happen, and all this. And then Secure said, Congress we're tired of waiting for our money. When you die, you got to take it all out in 10 years. Then there was exceptions, including for spouse um, and disabled and chronically ill beneficiaries. And then, um, brag on myself time, uh, me and my colleagues uh, at the NALA uh, Tax Steering Committee Managed to persuade Congress to add special third party special needs trust to that. So you're and welcome. If you
0: want more information about that, we did a webinar and a great podcast about this. Which episode. are now
1: out of date because of the proposed regulation. That's right. So but the, you'll
0: get the background and the <laughs> basic underlying tenets of the
1: so here, here's Probably the most surprising thing in the proposed regulations, which really, I mean, it was only 275 pages. <laughs> um, it, it, did a, it did actually complicate a lot of, of things. It really uh, made it even more. Uh, we, we were kind of hoping that the whether or not the death of the original owner was before or after age 72 would kind of stop mattering anymore. Okay,
0: we don't want to go down that and, uh, rabbit hole. On, I'm almost there.
1: Um, Unfortunately, made that all much more complicated and detailed, but the big thing was that we all thought that the 10-year rule was just the 10-year rule, right? So you died, and everybody was interpreting this as you died. Okay, then your beneficiary, if it's not a disabled person or something like this, a supplemental needs trust, had to take it out over, over 10 years. Yeah, but they could wait until the last day in the 10th year and take it all out then, and that was fine. The proposed regulations say not so fast. You actually have to take out minimum distributions based on the rule that we always have had. And then we add on a new rule that says year 10. Now, whatever's left has to all come out.
0: Now, we'll talk about this in more detail in a webinar that we're going to be doing shortly. So stay tuned for that um, because there's a lot of conversation about well, why would you want to wait until the last minute versus taking having to take at least some required minimum distributions over time? So we're going to get into all of that um, later. But for this topic, the most important thing to know is if you are a trustee of a trust that has an inherited IRA or any retirement contribution. You absolutely need to be talking to a tax advisor because it is it's just very complicated. Um, You know, you need to figure out whether you qualify, whether the trust qualifies, the beneficiary qualifies, and if you are just a if you are a beneficiary um, of a retirement plan and you are disabled, but it is not going into trust; it's coming to you directly then you still need to be chatting with your tax advisor because again, the rules are complicated and you really have an issue if you don't meet the um regulations and you underpay your tax in this area. It's a 50%
1: penalty. And the now you raised an interesting question, which is what if I thought the 10 yeah I have an inherited IRA of uh, my the original owner, say, my parent died in 2020. So the SECURE Act was in effect. I thought I had until 20, the end of 2031. to you know, I don't have to take out anything in 2021. So we didn't. So right? I didn't. Okay. Uh-oh. The proposed regs say I should have taken something out. What do I do? Well, the proposed regs say... If you had, if you took some reasonable position before these regulations become final, because they're not final yet, um, that'll be okay. So, um, if those regulations become final and you should have taken something out in 2021, then you would take it. And you would file another little form of 5329 that says, you know, please forgive me. You know, I didn't mean to be a bad person. And (laughs) they probably almost certainly will just let that slide.
0: And your tax preparer will know exactly how to do that. So if you are a family member or a close friend who has ended up becoming a trustee of this complicated trust that now has retirement plans, inherited retirement plans in it then it is really important to get yourself to an advisor and chat about it. Well, can you imagine the fun at our dinner table and all of the things that we get to talk about with each other? (laughs) Only two attorneys could stand each other, let me tell you. Okay, last but not least, caregiver payments. So there are two, generally two ways that people get paid as a family member to provide care to their disabled child. Um, Perhaps a disabled sibling, but a close family member living in your home. So those are AFC, otherwise known as adult foster care or adult family care, which most states have some kind of caregiver payment that falls under that category, or PCA, personal care attendant. So these two payments have very different tax implications for you as the recipient of the payment. Remember the disabled beneficiary, although they need to be on Medicaid in order to have this benefit pay out to a caregiver for them. The income is not related to the disabled beneficiary at all. It's a payment for services. And the AFC model was based on the old foster care for children system. That payment is not taxable to the individual caregiver receiving the payments. If that caregiver is also on public benefits, that's going to have a very different impact on their personal public benefits. But I'm not going to go into that here. Um, that's just important to check that out. If you are receiving housing benefits, if you are, if you, the caregiver are receiving Medicaid yourself, if you, the caregiver are receiving social security, it's very important to check that out. But in general, The caregiver is just not going to have taxable income related to that caregiving payment that is AFC. However, PCA is, it's an hourly payment, an hourly rate paid to you to provide one-on-one personal care. So what does that entail? For those of you who don't know what PCAs do, it's You know, showering and toileting, dressing, feeding, preparing meals, the kinds of things that are daily living skills that a person typically with a um, physical challenge, but sometimes with other, other things as well, is going to need help with. So PCA payments are taxable to the recipient. If you get paid for 20 hours a week, um, approximately, you know, 80 hours a month or more, then you are definitely going to have a potential income tax liability on those benefits, as well as needing to pay Social Security and um, other, other payments that go along with any typical income from work. It's a job. It's a job job. It's a tough job, but it's still a job. So Mark, do you have anything to add? Nope. Okay. All right. Well, this was quite a hearty subject and um, it's always fun. Always fun presenting with Mark.
1: I just think everybody listening is gonna wanna rush out and become (laughs) a tax attorney. This stuff is a blast.
0: I find it really, um, uh, I don't know, what's the word? It's headache provoking. Let's put it that way. (laughs) And that is why we split up the duties in our law office. Mark loves what he does and I love what I do. So it makes for a good conversation. Like I said, a lot of fun over the dinner table, a lot of fun. And today's dinner was chicken soup with matzo balls one of my first times trying to make that. Um, And we had this very interesting conversation about what are we going to talk about on our podcast? Well, here's the things we were going to talk about. And we debated some stuff before we got here to you. So you're lucky that we only had one, just one incidence of disagreeing with each other today. No, we didn't. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening podcast fans. If you are finding this content is valuable, I would really appreciate it if you could please rate and review. It means so much to us. It means the world, really. And it helps get this podcast and its content out to people that really need it. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them. And I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.